I'm Debbie Elias, film critic, creator, and host of Behind the Lens, where we go behind the lens, below the line, with the movers, the shakers, the film and TV makers, the producers, the writers, the directors, the cast, the production designers, the cinematographers, the costume designers, the composers, the sound editors, sound mixers, film editors, you name it, we talk to them all. And I'm so glad that we do. But welcome, welcome. I am thrilled about today's show. We're going a little dark again this week. Um, been having a, a bit of darkness in movies of late. So we're going a little dark again today. Um, first up, you're going to hear my exclusive interview with writer-director Rebecca Eskries talking about her new film, What Breaks the Ice, which is out now. Digital VOD. It's there it's a beautiful film, uh, but it has some very dark, dark thematics happening. Two girls coming of age, a summer up in, up in the mountains, kind of like a dirty dancing setting in, in the Catskills in, in New York. Um, but something happens with fatal consequences. Um, the movie is it's beautiful to look at. The sound design is impeccable. Uh, and Rebecca is an absolute delight as a filmmaker. It's her feature debut. Uh, I think it's her, it's her second film. Uh, you're going to hear that in a minute. At the midpoint of the show, I'm very excited that we're going to have Lanny Zippoy joining us to talk about her new film, The Subject, which releases on October 22nd. That's this, that's this week, isn't it, Pam? Yes, it's Friday. It's Friday. Um, the Subject. You talk about a jaw dropper. Wow. Wow. Stars Jason Biggs. Uh, we're going to get into it more when Lanny calls in at the midpoint of the show. Uh, but I am very, very excited because the subject opens up a lot of themes. Very timely, very topical. Some that have long been an issue with documentarians and news reporters when do you insert yourself into a story? Should you insert, insert yourself? Um, how does that play out? And when do you, as the filmmaker or reporter, um, should you ever become the subject? Uh, and this involves, very timely in terms of Black Lives Matter, it's a white documentarian who made it, who, claim to fame was a documentary he made about a young black teen uh, who subsequently was beaten to death. So it's, it's, we'll get into it when Lanny calls, but it is riveting. It's a tour de force performance from Jason Biggs. Most of us only really know him from the American Pie movies. Uh, this is nothing like the American Pie movies. Um, so, Lanny will be joining us at the midpoint, but first, 
Uh, oh, and very quickly. No, I'll do this at the end of the show. Uh, <laughs> but first, sit back, take a listen as I talk with Rebecca Eskries in this exclusive interview talking about what breaks the ice. I'm well, thank you. Well, you should be well. You've got a film that's out, a feature film. Yes, I'm pretty excited about it. <laughs> and I, ha- I have to tell you, my first impression of, of what breaks the ice when I started watching, and by the end of the film, it's still one of my strongest impressions, is your cinematography. The visuals are beautiful. There's a softness, almost a nostalgic touch to it that everybody, no matter what age, can remember those summers that they spent going away to a camp or a lake and and being partners in crime with somebody. The visual glow, emotional glow that you create is fantastic. Thank you so much. It was um, something that we put a lot of effort and um, <laughs> also allocated a lot of our budget into creating that feel so i'm glad that it, it comes across it real it really does i i i could just look at the images in this film all day long uh, Thank you so much you know where did you shoot this uh we shot the film in upstate new york mm-hmm. um in primarily putnam county Orange County and Westchester County, the northern part of Westchester, um, and it was we we really rolled the dice on this one, um, and that's not you know every independent film feels like a huge gambling enterprise, but um, in, in addition to an artistic endeavor, of course, but we really rolled the dice with the time of year that we shot it. Our first day of principal photography was September fourteenth, and um, and we were really fighting the fall, uh, but we pulled it off. And I think what was really great about it is because of this time of year that it was, we got this sort of um, that morning fog and mm-hmm. haze that would then burn off by the afternoon. And it created this really kind of ethereal, uh, um, not gloomy, because it still feels like summer, but I think it, it added a nice edge that reflects the themes of the story. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and for me, it felt like a, a nostalgic glow. Mm-hmm. Um, Very much so. Yeah, I mean, we, we, we weren't able to shoot on film, but we wanted to get as close as we could to the feel of of a of a movie shot on mm-hmm. film. Oh, you definitely, definitely achieved that. And that's a huge draw, you know, especially with a film like this, and you're not really sure what it's really going to be or where it's going to go because it's like, okay, coming-of-age film takes place... To, you know, one person from one side of the world, the other from the other. They meet up, they become friends. It, it sounds very tropish, or we've seen it before. But you take sure. it beyond that by intriguing us with your imagery. And then once we meet the characters, we're hooked. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah, I'm, I'm. like I said, we spent a lot of time thinking about uh, and, and in fact, thinking about the visual imagery and actually, you know, speaking to the point of visual imagery, I remember uh, one of the teal reads that we did where one of the actors commented that there was so little dialogue in the 
first 30 minutes of the movie, mm-hmm. and it's just on the page so much description, and we did everything we could to turn that description into into imagery and just try to swallow you in this in this environment as you got to know the girls and got invested in their story. Well, you really did. And then in addition to the imagery, you also piggyback that with a wonderful soundscape, wonderful sound design. You've got those distinctive insect sounds that you hear during the night, during the day, the splash of water in a lake. You give us all that ambience that really puts us in the moment and in this world, and I love it. Thank you. Yeah, you know, we um, we had specific soundscapes for Emily's house, for the lake, for Sammy's house because it's closer to town. You know, we always had like a lawnmower going or someone's sprinkler, you know, and, and of course the insects. And, you know, I think that that's something that when you're, like you're speaking to your childhood experience and many people, you know, when you're, if you're, if you're so used to living in a city or a pretty well-trafficked suburban area and then you go outside, suddenly you hear all of these sounds of nature mm-hmm. that you don't that are not part of your everyday life i'm talking to you right now i'm in a i'm in astoria in queens in new york and um we have two apartment buildings one going up in front of us and one going up behind us and (laughs) you know it's like when was the last time i heard a grasshopper at night or you know a bird chirping during the day i have to go to the park and isolate myself to, to hear those sounds of nature so yeah, that was that was a, those were very specific choices, and I'm I'm really thrilled that you picked up on oh it. Oh my God, I w- I'm so in love with the sound scape on this and those ambient sounds of nature because that that's so much of your experience. If you've ever been anywhere and heard that at night, you lay there sleeping and you hear all the little sounds. It's mm-hmm. it's spe- mm-hmm. of the insects and the kikadas and the crickets, and it's just fabulous. And that's what you want. You want to get away from the city. You know, where did the idea for this story arise? So initially it started as a story about two friends. I had gone to see uh, Richard Linklater's film Boyhood back in 2014 Mm -hmm. at a special screening at the IFC Center here in New York. And beyond that film being a complete masterpiece, both structurally and you know, on a storytelling level, you know, I was sort of in a place in my life where I was thinking about what I wanted my first feature as a director to be. And I had been working in the industry for, you know, a number of years at that point. And, you know, you, I, I'd always dreamed of directing my directing movies and that's why I got into this in the first place. And so I thought, okay, well, if, if I were going to write a film that would be my first feature as a director and it were going to be about, my adolescence, what would that look like? And so I just started writing about these two characters. Um, I spent a lot of summers, like you were saying, you know, in rural areas, summer camp. You know, my my grandparents also had a country house um, in the Poconos when I was a little kid. See, that's what grandparents are for. Yeah. Yeah. And, And just getting lost in the woods with my cousins and... I started thinking about as I got older what those conversations amongst friends um, at that age sound like, and what you're curious about, and what you're what you want to what you wish adults would tell you, but you kind of are figuring out on your own anyway. Um, 
and and it just started there. And then as as I got into the writing process and I thought about other themes that I wanted to explore, and then also thinking back to the specific time period in which I was the age of the characters and what was on our minds, um, that kind of helped the story take shape. Well, and and speaking of the time you picked, that 1997-98 Clinton era, the, the Lewinsky days, that I found that really interesting the way you interwove that through Emily's parents. The dinner table conversation <laughs> was really something, but it set up this striking tone so that you have Sammy's Sammy and, and the townies and they're oblivious. They're they're really oblivious and not paying attention to stuff like that. Emily I don't think is paying attention to much of anything except what she thinks in her head things are supposed to be but it's really striking the way you set that up and those dinner table discussions and her mother's attitude about Lewinsky and sex and whatnot comes into play so heavily as the film progresses yeah um yes and it was funny because I Speaking to that point, a, fr- a filmmaker friend of mine who had been, you know, had read several drafts, and she said, I, I didn't realize how pivotal that scene was going to be in the movie until I watched it. And for me, it was always a really important scene because we get so few glimpses of these parents, and it's really from the point, the movie is really from the point of view of young people, mm-hmm. you know, to the utmost degree. But what I found, why, why I love that scene so much and why I think it's so important thematically to the story is yes, to your point, they you know Sammy and her and her world they're not for whatever for what it's worth she doesn't seem to be particularly focused on politics and actually there's a scene that we cut out of the movie because it, I'm I'm which upset me of course because it was a really interesting scene in the same vein it was about the parents asking the girls. Um, like talking to them about about the fall and their plans for college and and emily's mother kind of pressing on sammy about like well how have you not like like trying to be that like mom with resources who steps in but also just has no idea what she's doing because she has no understanding of sammy's life and it was but it was supposed to be after the the rave and it just kind of messed with the with the momentum and so we ended up cutting the scene but i think it speaks exactly to your point which is that these girls come from two different worlds and in that particular moment we see the mindset that emily is growing up around which is these parents who are very much trying to shape who she is and her opinions and like kind of um protect her from everything but Emily's a firecracker, and you know she's naive, but she is, you know she's she she's curious about the world, and she knows that her parents are trying to shield her from mm-hmm. it, and and loves to. And I think that in that one scene, you kind of see how she's kind of, you know, pushing them uh, to to say, you know, I'm I'm growing up, and I see how things are. Obviously, as the film progresses, we see that she still has a lot to learn. You are, you've got another great scene in there with Emily's mom where the July 4th party and Sammy doesn't come and she's commenting to one of her friends, the one of her hoity-toity pretend friends that, you know, oh, the mores, you know, she didn't even have the decency to call and say she wasn't coming. And I just started, I, I started laughing. 
I mean, it's it said that one moment said so much. <laughs> it was great, Rebecca. It was great. Thank you. Yeah, it's like I mean, and especially because you know what's going on in Sammy's life, and and this ridiculous mom whose biggest problem is like who's coming to her July Fourth party, and you know has is so completely clueless. <laughs> And not, not our... to what her own daughter is doing, but to, to everything around her in the world, you know, except when she reads in the New York Times and then has to pontificate about it at dinner, you know. And it just that just cracked me up. It, it's like she's yeah. more worried about who did and did not RSVP and how what a lack of manners and mores that shows. Like, it yeah. just oh my god, it was delicious. But you know <laughs> when when you look at Emily. And you see the facade that she's trying to put on. And you look at Sammy, you have a, a great shift that happens in here. After July 3rd, you know, after the rave, July 3rd, July 4th. And then all of a sudden you shift your visuals. So now we get close-ups. Sammy is alone. The girls are not, aren't together. There's, some kind, there's an estrangement that's happening after that rave. It really, we get a complete shift in their emotional perspectives. That Sammy is the one who is street smart and wise beyond her years to a degree. Whereas Emily really has no clue about anything and thinks she can lie her way through everything and get off scot-free. And it's really interesting to watch how you've shifted that tone and modulated the girls. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, we um, those were a lot of a lot of conversations among the three of us of how do we how do we show this shift without it feeling contrived? And similarly to what you're saying, um, it was a, it was definitely a cinema uh, a cinematography decision as well as far as framing. And if and when you watch, yeah, after yeah, but there's like a good 15 minutes of the film where the girls are not together. Yeah. And you you see them drifting apart from each other and kind of settling back into their into their old world without each other. Mhm. And and then you start, you know, one begins to wonder if this friendship can hold up against what has happened. Yeah. And and I think also, you know, there were a lot of conversations about flashbacks in the story and how there are none in the before the pivotal incident and then there are several both from Sammy and Emily's perspective mm -hmm. and I think for me that was a kind of crack in the magic of this bubble they had been living in where it, all that mattered was the two of them and they could not get care about their lives before the summer and not think about what was going to happen after the summer and just kind of be present in their friendship and then this thing happens, and it sort of jars them out of this dreamy, um, idyllic summertime where they're reminded of who they really are. And for Sammy, it's who can she trust? Because she really can't trust anyone. And for Emily, it's, oh, I think I know all this stuff about how the world works, but if I can, be, I can act so confident and, you know, forthright and sexy and whatever because I'm playing this role that 
I know I'm going to go back with my mom and dad to New York City and mm-hmm. back to my life and with my with the, with my rich neighbors who rented a house down the street and my life will just continue and whether whatever happened this summer won't matter. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, it's you structured and, and that so, so well. Yeah, and that was and that was thank you. And so that was sort of like those were the conversations that we were having. Yeah, no, you really you structured that shift so well. Breaking that ice is exactly yeah. what you did. Now, you know, some real standout uh, moments that you have in the film involve your montages. You've got some beautiful montages here, each with different tonal bandwidth. And set with those montages is such a diversity in scoring. Alex Weston's score is absolutely wonderful and I love how uh, in the rave uh, montage the slow-mo you've got some chorale music that is kind of ethereal and kind of spooky at the same time and then earlier you've got the montage of the girls biking and playing tennis and swimming in the lake and swinging on the swings and everything is happy and carefree and that's a totally different musical tone what were you looking for musically with this because it adds another whole layer and speaks so loudly with these montages that you create. Yeah, so I I think Alex is a genius. Um, we had a really amazing collaboration. I, uh, you know, some people have different feelings about music and movies and how much of it to use and when to use it. And I'm, I'm a fan of using music when it's appropriate to... Mm-hmm mirror the emotion of the characters particularly in these really pivotal transition moments um and um actually my favorite piece of score i think is the is the end of the movie and it 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 makes me feel so many things as i'm watching it and listening to it and you know we had um one thing that was pretty consistent um not in the friendship montage but everything afterwards we had this kind of female vocal vocalist Mm -hmm. Yes. Who sings. And we kind of thought about that in a way as Sammy's voice. And that it slowly comes out as the movie progresses and we get to really know who she is. And um, and I, I was worried it was going to be too heavy-handed for a movie like this. But I think because of the sweeping nature of the imagery and the way that the pacing of the film feels, I think the music worked really well. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it was, I like that it's eclectic and it, um, it played, you know, we, we did pull some of it back. I'm, some of the, there were some moments with strings that we talked about where I was just like, it's a, we felt that it was maybe a little too much once we got to the final mix. But melodically and tonally, I think that it really worked very well. No, I think the, I think the score is, is perfectly done for this film and the emotionality you know, within the girls and their lives. Yeah. And and I like that, that whole idea of it's ser- of the female vocal serving as Sammy finding her voice. Yeah. Because the only voice we really hear initially, it's everything Emily wants and everything Emily thinks. And mm-hmm. we, we should have sex at the same time in the same room. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's like, oh, my God. <laughs> what planet? What planet are you? Are you on, child? <laughs> but, 
so well, she's had, she came away with all these things she wanted to accomplish this summer. Dude, you know? dude, she, had, like, it, she, had, she had summer goals. That's it, that's some bucket list. That's some summer bucket list. Let me tell you. No, I I have to ask you because this is your first feature. You are no stranger to filmmaking. And you've worked in various capacities, so you know the process. It's not like you're just jumping in. I think I'm going to direct a film. What would you? What was your learning curve like? Stepping into the director's chair, and wearing the hats of writer and director. Were you ever in conflict as a director, thinking, "No, I shouldn't. This doesn't work," or is the writer part of you going, "No, but I really like that line, and I want it in." What was that like for you? You know, it, it, it was, um, I hadn't, I actually, that, I didn't find that part as challenging as I thought I would. And, you know, that was, I think, partially due to the incredible cast that I had, mm-hmm. where I would always say to them, I'm not Tennessee Williams. If a line is not working for you, let's talk about it. And there were two I can think of two scenes off the top of my head. One in particular, which is one of my favorite scenes in the film, which is like this this scene right before um, it's the two of them in Emily's house after that July 4th party where they talk about what they're going to do. And um, I love that scene. I love how it's shot. I love both of their performances. I think you peel back a layer of who they they each are. Um, in a way that we haven't seen them yet, just even on their in their facial expressions, and this like one tear that's coming down Madeline's face. Um, but I bring that scene up because we wrote we rewrote a lot of that scene on the day, and the girls were like, "These lines just don't. This line doesn't work for us, and we think this this doesn't work." And we went through it together, and we rewrote half the scene. Um, and I think it's one of my favorite scenes in the film. So. I was really open to that. I think the hardest thing for me, if I'm going to be completely honest, was I hadn't been on a set like this, in the, not as a producer, but like in production, mm-hmm. in a very long time, um, and on, on a feature, maybe never, because I went from working in like from film school doing short films right to then working as an assistant for like big producers and directors um and you're on way bigger sets than this your the budgets are much bigger i was working for the people on top it was like a whole huge production whether it was 10 million dollars or 100 million dollars right and then um went and produced a uh, another SAG modified low budget film, but on a on a much it was on a much lower budget scale than our film. And also, I was a producer and I wasn't on set every day. So this was my first time in this budget level, which is like the you know higher end of low budget filmmaking. Mm-hmm. And I was on set every day, working with crews who work together all the time. Who, in all my years of being of doing my journey had been working on set together. And there were things that I just, I had to learn on the fly. And it wasn't that I didn't know them, it was either I hadn't been around it in a long time, or, you know, these were people that all knew each other and I was new, and that was hard. Um, and this, this once we decided to green like this one, it came together really quickly. 
So I think it was kind of getting my sea legs again of being on a run-and-gun production where we had more money than any other film that I had been on set for. You know, there were some days I showed up and I saw what was going on and I was a little overwhelmed and had to kind of just plant my face in the monitor or I'd be a little intimidated <laughs> by how much was going on around me. But I think that was the biggest learning curve for me was kind of jumping into that seat and feeling confident that I could be the boss of this movie, you know, and, and be a good collaborator with all the other people that I was working with. Mm-hmm. So now what's, what's next? You've got this one. It's done. It's out. People can see it. Is there another one that you're working on? Are you going to just sit back and breathe for a while? What's next, Rebecca? Yeah, so I um, I have one I'm writing, but it's it's more, it's a work for hire film um, for television. So we'll see what, what happens with that. Um, that's something I started last year. Um, so that's, you know, we also do things that pay our bills and that are fun to write and direct. So I'm looking forward to that. Um, it's a, it's in the thriller space. Um, and then I have a, a pilot that I wrote that my agent has just started sending around and it's a very different kind of story. It's a, it's more of a family dramedy. Um, it takes place in Austin, Texas, and it's about a couple who, um, through a series of unfortunate events, find themselves, um, in a position where their in-laws have to move into their home so that they don't lose custody of their children <laughs> and um, because they broke the law. Um, and and then suddenly, you know, and this takes place, like I said, in Austin, Texas, where, you know, there's a whole uh, spectrum of political and ethical and sociological beliefs that can clash when you have a young couple, their two kids, and the grandparents living together. Um, and then I guess the other thing I'm working on, which is a more long-term project, but kind of fell, fell in my lap, and it's been a really interesting adventure, is I befriended um, someone who's the grandson of one of the original Von Trapp family singers. Oh, wow. And Yeah, and so we've been working on a story about, it's really about him, his mother, and his grandmother, and he and his grandmother was married to one of the, the oldest son of the original Von Trapp family. Um and he grew up with his grandmother and grandfather and his mother in their home in Rhode Island. And, um, and so it's been kind of, it's, it's, yes, they have, you know, we all know the story of the Von Trapp family from The Sound of Music. And this is sort of a, a slice of life story of three generations of that family and how, you know, how their lives have been affected or not by being part of this family. Mm-hmm. And that's been a really fun project to research, so I hope to start getting into the writing process of that later this year. Okay, that one sounds incredible. Yeah, yeah I'm really excited about it. It's a great story, and they're they're great people and have been so warm and welcoming to me. And we're, you know, it's a, they're a huge family, so it's been really trying to slight, <laughs> like just isolate the, the, the lineage of the family and their, really just their stories. Um, um, which is really fascinating. So I'm excited about that. Okay. I definitely cannot wait for that one. Oh, my God, Rebecca. Yes. <laughs> I can't thank you enough. This has been so wonderful talking to you this morning about what breaks the ice and and what you've got coming up. I can't wait to see where you go next. I can't wait to see what you direct next. Thank you so much. And this has been a really fun conversation. Thank you for asking me such great questions and for your enthusiasm for the film. It means a lot. And that was Rebecca Eskries, What Breaks the Ice? 
it really it it's a wonderful film to see uh, the the imagery is spectacular the story is interesting uh, it's a twist on a coming-of-age story. It's a big twist on a coming-of-age story. Um, and it is out now. VOD, digital. Um, so check it out. And now we're going to switch gears here and get even a little bit darker with Lanny Zipoy. Hi, Lanny. Hi, Debbie. Thanks so much for having me on. I am so excited to have you on after seeing your film, The Subject. Wow. Oh, thank you so much. Oh, my God. It is riveting. It is thought-provoking. I was spellbound. Spellbound. This is, this is so wonderful to hear. Keep it, keep it coming. <laughs> this is... Uh, you know, it, I didn't know what to expect. And, you know, the first few minutes of the film... Okay. Trying to, you know, you're setting you're setting it up here. So we're meeting the uh, the wonderful documentarian. Uh, we're mm -hmm. me we're meeting Phil Waterhouse. We're also meeting his girlfriend Jess, who runs or owns a boutique, and she yeah. and she encounters uh, a relative, a family friend relative, come in and uh, you know who's trying to help a. You know, so a wayward girl, shall we say? Um, yeah. And who does who tries to shoplift, and Jess yep. tries to help her, and say, "Look, just tell your aunt I gave it to you, and uh, you know, don't we're not gonna not gonna get you in trouble." She's trying to help the girl, so that she can go for yeah. an interview and try and turn her life around. That's what really sets us and sends us into Phil's story as a documentarian <laughs> and the documentary he made about a young black teen named Malcolm who <laughs> was murdered, beaten to death, and Phil caught it on footage. And now he's facing a backlash from yep. press and from everybody else. And this opens up a can of worms on so many levels. Mm -hmm. And you just take off with this with a pot boiler that has you on the edge of your seat. This plays like a thriller, Lanny. It really mm. plays like a thriller. And, we hoped it would. Oh, so my. I'm glad to hear that. It really does. Because as all of these pieces, because Phil's currently working on a new, on a documentary series uh, featuring yep. four young black men uh, as mm -hmm. a follow-up to, to this film that he did. He's also avoiding all the press uh, and everybody who wants to talk to him and find out what the heck is wrong with you. You filmed yeah, this kid exactly. getting beaten to death. Um, mm -hmm. This opens up discussion for something that has been as I'm sure you know a a topic a long time topic in for news reporting mm -hmm. and for documentarians where do you draw yeah. the line where do you get involved um, it really came to the fore during Vietnam with reporters mm -hmm. uh, you know do we grab a child and save it from a napalm attack do you know yep. what do we do or do we maintain objectivity and stay back 
And that has always mm-hmm. been such a fine line. And morally, ethically, it really you really don't know. And it can go either way. Same thing with a documentary. You know, do you insert yep. yourself as the filmmaker? Do you become one of the subjects, part of the discussion? We've seen mm-hmm. plenty of documentaries where that happens, and it changes the whole dynamic of the documentary, loses any objectivity. And mm-hmm. <laughs> so you, you just open this wide open for so much discussion, and then... You, and then it's all predicated, we have the race issue, the Black Lives mm-hmm. Matter. Even though that this was written by uh, so many years ago originally, I think it's, what, 10 years ago? Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, but, I think closer to 11 now. Yeah, so now that, op- it's very timely, you know, there, there's, timing is everything. Uh, <laughs> yeah. And so that then opens up this white documentarian Number one, how objective is he going to be in filming this group of four black teens? How objective was he in filming the young boy for the documentary, Malcolm? Um, Mm -hmm. Those questions get raised. And then you see his pattern shift as things happen to one of the boys, uh, to Kwame. Mm -hmm. You see something unexpected. But then we also get another side of Phil here as Phil <laughs> hires an assistant, a female <laughs> assistant uh, yeah. who, who, you know, right away at meeting her when they're meeting in this coffee shop and she's gushing over him. I've seen everything you've done. I've seen your thesis. <laughs> OK, that would scare me to begin <laughs> with. If that's the first thing when you're meeting a film, a filmmaker to work with them as an intern or an assistant. Oh, yes, I saw your thesis. That takes a lot of digging. Yes, it Uh, does. And along with, at the same time, because of all the quote-unquote bad press Phil may now be getting, and it's bad because he's refusing to talk to anybody about the documentary and what he Mm -hmm. may or may not have done, um, Somebody's stalking him, a peeping Tom shining through the windows. Of course, his solution should have been to get window shades, but we won't go there. (laughs) I digress. Um, So then we've got that whole can of worms. This is so complex. This is the complexity of our world. And you have brought it to life, Lanny. Well, I really appreciate you saying that. I mean, that's, that's how I felt when I read the script. That, that Shisa Hutchinson had written something so daring and beautiful. And I was really excited that I was going to get to direct it. How did this script come to you? I mean, it's not a run-of-the-mill script. It's, you know, it's daring to attempt a film like this. Mm-hmm especially with how you made this film. And we'll get into that in a minute because I'm just, that blows my mind. I love it. Um, You go out on a limb and you cast Jason Biggs in in a role that it's a tour de force performance. We've never seen this from him. And quite honestly, I didn't think he had this depth in him. Mm. So I am beyond thrilled with that. But how did this come to you? 
Well, luckily, the screenwriter and I are friends. We met in theater about 10 years ago. And we worked together, and it was wonderful. And I had the opportunity to direct. And so I reached out to her and said, do you have anything? And she's like, maybe. And she sent me the subject. And I fell in love with it the moment I read it. Uh, I, I don't blame you. If this script had crossed my desk, I would have said, oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I'm in. You know. Yeah. And I think, actually, I, that her agent couldn't believe that they had that she had such a juicy script. Because when I optioned it, they were like, it's really good. <laughs> <laughs> you know, those little gems stay hidden sometimes till the perfect moment. Yeah, exactly. You know, now you get, you option this, you get this script, you just, you're going to direct it. Where do you even start dissecting mm. this script to, mm. you know, flesh out your visuals and make this cinematic? Because you have so many moving parts and you have, and this is where your cinematography you know, and oh my God, I am now a huge, huge fan of Darren Joe, your cinematographer. This is where I love him. your collaboration with him comes into play because you're shooting with four different styles of mm -hmm. camera, not just four different cameras, but styles. So you've got one different style that's more vintage for the mm -hmm. existing footage of Malcolm. You have a yeah. camera that is shooting you know, everything that's happening, you know, the interactions of Phil and Jess and, and, you know, hot to trot assistant, um, <laughs> Marley, yeah. um, you've got another format for what he's shooting of Kwame and his three friends. Mm -hmm. So how, how do you even begin to break this down? Well, first, I'm super thrilled that you mentioned Darren because I think he he is so integral to the subject. We were supposed to actually, this is my feature debut, we were supposed to work on another film together, and that fell through, but we had developed a working relationship and rapport that was just really easy. So there's a lot of shot planning in it, but it's really fun to figure out what's going to go where. Mm -hmm. And then I think the other part of it is, not only what's going to go where, but how do we let the audience in? Mm -hmm. Because there are moments where the audience knows that it's watching a documentary viewpoint. Right. And how do we do that where it's seamless? And so I think we spent months just talking about that. So that's really what we unpacked at, at the start. Mm -hmm. Now, did you, did you yes. shot list or storyboard this or a combination of the two? Um, we mainly shot listed it. In fact, I just came across the shot list a couple of days ago and it's immense. I can't even believe that we, <laughs> we shot listed it that much. And, and if I'm being honest about it, there was actually one scene in, um, mine Hunter, David Fincher series. So this, though the film doesn't feel like it's related to David Fincher in any way. There was one scene where there was an office scene and three people, and I saw that um, it had been shot by, I think, about 13 different camera angles. 
And that really inspired the second half of the film. And from that, we then sort of worked backwards and how we could build up to that. Well, your build up is incredible. It really is. You are. It's a pot boiler. It's building and mm-hmm. it's building. And, uh, you know, we're wondering. We, we've heard that Malcolm was beaten to death. We're, we've heard that he had a camera there that that he was mm-hmm. filming. But we haven't seen anything. It's all just, you know, it's quote unquote, the rumor mill running amok. Mm -hmm. Uh, And what I, what I love with the way you depict this is at no time does it, does he bring up to Jess uh, as somebody is pointing a camera in the window uh, while they're, you know, getting naked on the couch uh, it doesn't mention anything. It doesn't occur to him, you know. It's it's paparazzi or or somebody or some malevolence uh, after mm-hmm. him, and she dismisses it as a peeping tom. Right. But we're already getting inklings because of, and this is where Jason is so key. He starts bringing this real nervousness. He's very yeah. very nervous. It's it's a slight nuance. But it, he builds on it until we get to that third act that just explodes in every way, mm-hmm. shape, and form. I mean, it, this film, third act, is like you put a keg of dynamite underneath it and lit it. <laughs> it just, yeah. whoa. <laughs> we thought of it as kind of an action film, much as possible, you know, that that that's what it is. But to be honest, to have Jason in this lead, I was very lucky that he wanted to take a chance on me as a first-time uh, feature director, especially dealing with something that, I mean, I've seen him do drama both, um, like, opposite Elizabeth Moss mm-hmm. on Broadway and in Orange is the New Black, but to really carry the film in this way, in, mm-hmm. a, in a role that requires an operatic performance. Yes. And I was so grateful that he said yes. Yeah, I it's I mean he does. It is it's it's tour de force. It is the best thing I've ever seen from him. Um and but- he was so present throughout. Just brought it. I mean, first of all, he's the loveliest person. So it relaxes everybody on set. But but then when it's time to work, he's so dropped in and concentrated. It it really was a dream come true. Well, you know, a, a big part of this also is in breaking your film, essentially, yes, there are three acts, but to really break your color palette, that more mm-hmm. or less is a 50-50 split. Uh, and, it, yeah. and it really comes down to when we are meeting, every time we're seeing Malcolm, meeting Malcolm, you know, he's happy mm-hmm. and we see the footage and it's beautiful and he's wearing all these eye-popping neon colors mm-hmm. and even the light the light within the Malcolm documentary it's bright yeah. it's uh, it you know it's clean it's clear it's unfettered and it's but it's textured and you can really mm-hmm. see and almost feel the life that this young man has in him and yeah and we were Lucky to have Niall Bullock playing the role, who has light himself. But I'm really glad that you on that because 
working with both um, with F- Freddie Centron, who was our gaffer. I worked with him as a producer on many films, mm-hmm. and he and Darren just brought such magic with that. And then our colorist Oliver Ohai is top notch. But that I'm glad that that came through because that's exactly what we hoped would. It really does. Whenever Malcolm is on screen in the quote unquote the old do- the documentary film footage. He has so much life. He jumps off the screen, which makes his death even more horrific as we move through this film. And as we get into this, this final third act and really like the last half of the third act, um, Mm. and the whole lighting palette shifts there in the middle section is pretty much gray. You pretty much keep mm-hmm. things very neutral, very gray, because things are somber, but also it's very objective. You're not in, mm-hmm. you're not infusing any kind of color. You're not infusing influence, and I love that because that mirrors what Phil is should be is supposed to be doing with the the series he's shooting now with Kwame. Yeah, and I'm 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 just so thrilled on that because actually for many years I I worked in color and fashion and so color is very important to me for telling a story and so hearing your response to that is I mean you're hitting it the nail on the head I mean the color is so important um especially in a film like this where you have different different perspectives different POVs and different time frames uh and then in that third act I love, love what you and Darren do with the lighting design. Um, We have that living room scene and all of a sudden light comes (laughs) flooding through the sheer curtains. Um, And it just, it's almost like a white light to heaven. That, Mm. you know, uh, everybody, eyes are now open. Hearts are now open remorse is present as is guilt and that light it more or less it's opening up you've got the exposure wide open and it is Mm -hmm. showing everybody the truth of what happened and that's so that's so beautiful it, it just that was so moving visually to see that um and the way that plays just exquisitely done. Well, thank you. You know, I, I felt like it was a gift because, I mean, I love Chisa Hutchinson's screenplay um, through and through, but I think most people, if writing this, would have chosen for that scene to be at night. And I think that having it in the day, as you said, um, sets the tone a little bit differently mm-hmm. and opens up the audience differently yep. than if it's just a nighttime scene. If a night, if it w- had been a shot at night, it would have been dark. It would have been somber. There would have been mm-hmm. no kind of relief, release and relief and acceptance. And there is so much revealed in that section of the film that you really need that metaphor of of the the light they are now seeing the light has come into their mm. lives they can now see um what there's no longer any gray it's now 
natural. It's bright. It's white. But you still get that nice little bright diffusion through the sheer curtains as it comes through yeah. onto the stair. And I always love the way light comes through sheer curtains because it adds its own little diffusion to it um, that softens it a little bit. But Yeah, and I think for us it also ties back that in all those different cameras and the yes. ways in which they're using them, sort of like the curtains, is what are you seeing, what's the vantage point, through what lens, through what eye, and... All of that makes a difference yeah. to this story, but into storytelling in general. And, you know, we hope that this would create sort of a seamless picture of everybody in this film, their lives, and what was at stake for them. Yeah, I mean, it, it just comes together so beautifully. Uh, and that, this is a tough film to pull together visually so that, mm-hmm. and to keep everybody, so, you know, all the balls in the air but to keep that continuity going because it's very easy in a film like this with so much happening to lose your continuity, especially if you're watching Mm. it, um, you know, without flashcards. So (laughs) you do a beautiful job. And then you give us all these little, these little tidbits that I hope people pick up on when they see it. Um, you know, there's one great scene of, you know, Phil's in the car and he gets Mm -hmm. his phone out and he's sending, you know, a PayPal to somebody. Mm -hmm. And I hope people put two and two together and realize what he's doing and why. Um, and I think it's safe to say guilt is a big part of it. Um, it's huge, huge. Huge. Guilt is such a motivating factor for Phil on so many levels in this film. Mm-hmm. Um, and, I mean, it's actually, it's a cautionary tale as well from, mm-hmm. from his perspective. It's a very cautionary tale about, you know, some people that get caught up in their own success as well. Um, you know, but bringing all of this together, Lanny, how long were you and Sophie Marshall in editing? <laughs> you know, I think the edit, yeah. Well, first of all, she deserves huge credit because she was great. And to be honest, this is going to sound very strange. We did not meet in person until after the editing was done. I know never happens, but she was coming off a editing job where the director sat with her every moment. And I just really believe that, it was working, me giving her notes virtually yeah. and us talking on the phone. And so I think it was like two and a half months, something like that. But she really got the story and she was really excited about the use of the documentary footage. And there was some points where we actually leaned more in things and she helped me discover stuff. But particularly that final act, um, she was just a godsend for that. She really made it soar. That final act is, and the stair, the staircase aspect of it, mm. that was, I mean, Darren had to be going handheld on that and zooming in so tight. Um, the, yeah. e- the ECUs are amazing. Amazing. Mm. The frenzy, um, the movements, you know, zeroing in on the feet, trying to get, a, a, you know, a foothold on the carpet 
Yeah. At the bottom of the stairs. Wow. Um, on the hands. On Phil's hands. Uh, yeah. Just the intensity is insane. So, I mean, and that's incredible camera work there. But it's also a testament to Sophie's editing to put mm-hmm. all of those pieces together so succinctly and effort- effortlessly um, so it's seamless. And your eye, do- it's like your eye doesn't know where to look. Do we look at the head? Do we look at the hands? Do we look at the feet? Do, do, what, are yeah. we, what are we looking at? Because it's happening so fast in such a rage and furor. Uh, just uh, that editing, the editing of that scene is impeccable. Impeccable. I I completely agree. You know, and working with her on that was amazing. And I would say to every first-time filmmaker, the best thing is to work with an experienced editor who is generous and <laughs> will make things better, but will also listen to you and what your uh, viewpoint is and, you know, make it better. And that's exactly what Sophie did, hands down. Well, you know, you've got another part here. Doug Womble's scoring. Mm. You've got, it you, makes me so happy you say that. I, We've been friends since high school. We in Memphis together. And literally, I mean, I love the score so much. It's just exactly what I wanted. Mm-hmm. And I said about three words to him. He came up with it. And in truth, most things... I would say I think there are 31 pieces of music, mm-hmm. and I think 26 were nailed on the first try. Wow. Um, one I really loved, but we moved it to the end credits, and he wrote something else. And otherwise, I mean, I think the score took under two weeks. And it was perfect for him because he's done a lot of scoring for Ken Burns and worked in a lot of documentaries. Mm-hmm. So he, he feels really comfortable in that world, but was looking forward to doing narrative and for me to work with such a dear friend who is uber talented. I mean, that was joyous. But see, that's one of the great things about Doug's score is that it's subtle. It's unobtrusive. Mm-hmm. And where it needs to sound, some of the motifs are very much a documentary style motif. Mm-hmm. But then you also get narrative flow um, in, other, in other areas. So it's a beautiful melt. Um, of style. I, I think so, too. I mean... Yeah, that really... Yeah, when he sent it to me, I was just blown away. Like, that's perfect, and that's perfect, and that's perfect, and we said about five words to each yeah. other about and, it. Um, I would just say, I want it to sound kind of like this, and then, boom, <laughs> it sounded exactly like that, and even better. But, you know, that's what you need. I want it kind of like this. You know, mm-hmm. it, but, yeah, the motifs, there are some beautiful motifs and there are some very identifiable motifs, uh, mm-hmm. character motifs that we hear uh, through various points in the film. Uh, and they just work so well. But as I said, they're, it's unobtrusive. And it's not yes. leading us. It isn't defining anything. The definition is there yeah. in the performance and the character. Right say and I said this to him though obviously it's not really a reference but I'm much more I mean I like Beethoven but that comes from the top down and is very heavy yeah but I'm much more into Mahler in the sense that it comes from underneath and comes up Mm -hmm. and has a delicate balance and that's more what I wanted for this film because I didn't want us to just be putting heaviness 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 
when the story already has that. I just wanted to support it in places. Yeah, um, definitely. I like I like your Mahler reference or even Schumann. Yes. Um, very, his compositions very similar in that regard, but. You know, this wouldn't be what this wouldn't be the film it is without some of these cast members. And I got I got to tell you, Niall Bullock as Malcolm. He just leaps off that screen. I want to see more from him. The camera loves him. Um, Oh, yeah. He is effervescent. And you just you root for him, which makes this even more poignant. As we're as you're watching, because you know, and the more and the more information that comes out, the more despondent you are about this bright light being snuffed out. Mm-hmm. And yeah, he he broke your heart, I think, and he broke it. He broke my the audition phase on end. He's also a joy to work with. He. He just was on Power Book 3, and he's been on Ray Donovan. He's got a burgeoning career and a lovely artistic family. His his younger brother is on a Netflix show. His mom <laughs> is a singer, actually touring with Chic right now. Dad's a jazz musician. Loveliest family, and I just think I think he's going to take over the world because he's amazing. Well, you know, there, you've got the one sequence in there, and we're not going to say what happens in the sequence, but... It's the footage that Phil didn't include in his documentary. Mm. And I wanted to throw something at the screen. Mm -hmm. I'm serious. I wanted to throw something at the screen watching that. Yeah. Um, That one's that scene says scream so loudly, Lanny. It is perfection. And oh, well, thank you. And Niall, he is just a joy in that. A joy. But, you know, you also lucked out when you got Caleb Everhart as Kwame. I loved, uh, I saw him in Black Christmas as Landon a couple oh, years ago. And I just think he's great. I I do, too. I, I mean, he came to auditions, and we were all like, okay, we don't really have to see anybody else. And Caleb, I mean, he's a musician in his own right. He's been on Broadway and Choir Boy, which we all saw. He He's the real deal. He was also in Betty in a really complicated role, the HBO series first um, season, mm-hmm. and also just a real delight. And, you know, he makes such an – he's not in very many scenes, but he makes such an impact. Yeah. And, I mean, part of that is Cheese's writing, which I think gave everybody something delicious to mm-hmm. play. But it's also just him. He's phenomenal. Nobody got shortchanged on the writing here. They may have limited screen time, but what they have is meaty. You know, everybody's got some meat to bite into here, and they do it. You know, Annabella uh, Acosta as Jess. Um, She's, I've loved her. I loved her in Quantico. Um, oh, of course. You know, I, and, you know, ironically, you've got uh, and John Way Ellis as Leslie, Malcolm's mother, mm-hmm. also in Quantico. But, you know, and, yep. and currently, you know, Lovecraft Country. But she. Well, and what's so funny about that is she was in Lovecraft Country and her her big episode, episode seven, 
um, Cara Patterson, who plays Marley, uh-huh. played Josephine Baker. So they didn't meet on the set of the subject, but they met while making Lovecraft Country. And oh, I was, my God. I love, love that. Wow. But it's just on every level, on every level, Lanny, this is just, it is a powerhouse. And everybody should see this film. It's a beautiful I, film. I hope they do. I mean, it's beautiful. Um, it's powerful. As I said, it's riveting. It's thought-provoking. It opens up so many doors for conversation on so many different subjects and levels. Um, and that's a tough thing to do. But you do it. Yeah. No, well, thank you for that. Yeah. I, I, that's what we want is conversation. Well, this will definitely spark conversation. And everybody can see, everyone can see this this Friday. You've got, what, limited theaters in, what, 10 different cities? Mm-hmm. VOD, digital, there is no excuse not to see it. That's what we say, too. Thank you, Debbie. <laughs> we want people to see it wherever they can. Yeah, you know, there's no excuse not to see this. It is well worth it everybody's time you know it's what an hour and 58 minutes it it is this film is more than worth two hours of your time to see um yeah i i just can't compliment you enough commend you enough um this is truly talk about a a directorial debut wow wow well as you pointed out i was very lucky to work with so many fabulous team members and I mean I could go through 200 more that helped bring this to life so I I feel very blessed and now I just hope the blessings continue and that people will come and see the film and see the wonderful performances that we were able to to have they're not going to believe it when they see Jason Biggs I'll tell you they are not going to I agree I agree with you (laughs) oh Lanny I can't thank you enough this has been an absolute delight and a pleasure to have you on the show today. I hope you'll come back. Anytime. I would love to come back. Oh. And I, actually in our conversation, I even learned something about about my film. And I that just is so joyous. So thank you for all your wonderful comments about it. Oh, yeah. I, there is, uh, you know, uh, if, if, if it sucked, if there was something bad, I would tell you and I would explain my reasoning to you. But... This is so strong on every level. It, it really. Um, I'll go back and watch it again to see if I can find something wrong with it, though. <laughs> yes, and please, if you do, let me know. <laughs> I will, Lenny. Thank you so, so much. And I'll chat with you again soon. I'm looking forward to it, Debbie. Thank you so much. Thanks. Bye-bye. All right. Bye. And that was director Lanny Zipoy, the subject. People, make this part of your weekend viewing. Um, forget about tent poles in the theater. The, the subject is a film that you need to see. And also, hope you're all checking out Dope Sick. That's, you know, Hulu. We haven't gotten all the episodes out yet. So you can play catch up as we work towards the big climactics. Uh, and, of course, more legal doings in real life surrounding uh, Purdue Pharma and the Sackler family. But uh, 
You'll hear more from me about Dope Sick uh, once we get around to a couple more episodes. So, uh, and I want to give a big thank you to Flickr Alley for, where is it? Where'd it go? I lost it. I lost it. No, here it is. I want to give a big shout out to Flickr Alley. I want to thank them for this wonderful In the Shadow of Hollywood Highlights from Poverty Row. It is a small compilation. It is out on the 19th, which is tomorrow. And it it they've put together some very choice little Poverty Row films. Uh, Poverty Row was the nickname that uh, came out in the 1920s for these small budget films, short production schedules. Uh, most of them were overlooked, went by the wayside, but a lot of big name actors appeared on in films made on Poverty Row. Humphrey Bogart, Faye Ray, Eric von Stroheim, Sterling Holloway, and this compilation, it's $39.95, two, two disc Blu-ray, and Midnight, a.k.a. Call It Murder with Humphrey Bogart, Backpage, Woman in the Dark with Faye Ray and Ralph Bellamy. I love this one. I've seen it before, and I love it. The Crime of Dr. Crespi with Eric von Stroheim. Um, really good stuff. Uh, Poverty Grove put out some great, great films, uh, as all of the film historians and cinephiles know. But here's your chance. Pick it up. Uh, it's well worth it. Makes a great holiday gift since we're getting to that time. And they're already in stock in the United States, so they're not sitting in a ship off the coast somewhere. So that is all the time we have. Yes, we ran over. Um, stop laughing, Pam. Uh, but we'll be back next week. Marshall Cook should be joining us to talk about his film called Film Fest. Until then... I'm Debbie Elias. This is Behind the Lens. Mm -hmm.